1966, it was already clear that however else historians would remember the 20th century, they would remember it for the discovery of the atomic theory of matter and the atomic theory of inheritance. Physicists and geneticists had developed both theories early in the century. At mid-century, a small circle of young scientists, including Benzer and Francis Crick, both lapsed physicists, and James Watson, a lapsed ornithologist, had united the two theories. They discovered what genes are made of atom by atom. The double helix. The spiral staircase of DNA. They mapped the fine structure of the gene down to the level of its atoms, and they cracked the code in which the genetic messages are written. They now knew precisely what a gene is physically. Although they did not know how to connect the details they were looking at, which were atomic, with the details of the living world that most interested them, and interest all of us, hands, eyes, lips, thoughts, acts, behavior. Within ten years, the physicists turned biologists had learned so much about genes that they had begun to look around and above the genes for new worlds to conquer. To the boldest, many worlds beckoned. Innumerable lines of work radiated outward from the gene, including the problems of the origin of life, the growing embryo, consciousness, and behavior, a problem that Crick called attractively mysterious, one of the last true secrets in biology. Watson, Crick, Benzer, and their circle had arrived at the double helix by working with viruses and E. coli bacteria in petri dishes. But they knew that geneticists before them had worked out the atomic theory of inheritance using fruit flies and milk bottles. Benzer has a strong, somewhat sentimental sense of history, and it appealed to him to make the next great leap forward by going back. Fruit flies are bigger than bacteria, but they are still tiny. They are grains of sand with wings, small enough to crawl through the mesh of screen doors, almost as small as Pascal's mites, so small that Aristotle mistook them for gnats. Coming from physics and from E. coli, Benzer saw them as atoms of behavior, and he thought they might be the perfect creatures with which to found a new science, an atomic theory of behavior. By chance, the very first published laboratory study of Drosophila, or fruit flies, a long-forgotten paper that he tracked down some time afterward, had been a report on the flies' behavior their reactions to light, gravity, and mechanical stimulation. Even that first report, which appeared in 1905, had suggested that the fly's instinct for light is not simple. If their jar was sitting on the windowsill, a biologist at Harvard reported, most of the flies would come to rest on the sides of the jar with their heads pointed away from the sun. But turn the jar slightly and nearly every fly instantly flew toward the window. To Benzer, Drosophila looked like just the happy medium he was looking for. An E. coli bacterium is a single cell. In a sense, he could think of it as a nervous system with a single neuron. At birth, 
A human baby has about 100 billion neurons, one for every star in the Milky Way. A fruit fly has about 100,000 neurons, so it is the geometric mean between the simplest and the most complicated nervous system we know. Likewise, the mass of a single E. coli bacterium is one ten trillionth of a gram. The mass of a man is 100,000 grams. The fly is roughly the geometric mean, at two hundredths of a gram. And a bacterium has a generation time of a hundredth of a day, while a human being has a generation time of 10,000 days. 10,000 days to pick a generous round number before one human being produces another. A fly has a generation time of about 10 days, again, roughly, a geometric mean between the two. Even the number of genes in the fly is a mean between bacteria and human beings. In very round numbers, a bacterium has 4,000 genes, a human being has 70,000 genes, and a fly has 15,000 genes, which puts it once again between the simplest and the most complicated creatures we know on the planet. Benzer modeled his test tube experiment after a laboratory routine that he had learned from a chemist. The chemist used a simple trick to separate two compounds that were mixed together. One of his compounds would dissolve slightly more easily in oil, and the other more easily in water. So the chemist put his mixture in oil and water and shook it up. He let the oil and water separate, oil above and water below. Then he transferred the top layer to a new tube and the bottom layer to another tube. He added fresh oil and water and shook them up again. When he had done this enough times, he found that he had separated the two compounds. The tube of oil now had an almost pure sample of the compound that liked oil, the tube of water an almost pure sample of the compound that liked water. Chemists call this the countercurrent distribution method because, in a sense, it sets currents flowing in opposite directions one compound flowing upward, the other flowing downward.